Welcome to One Does Not Simply, where three friends take on the Lord of the Rings and go on some unexpected journeys. I'm Wanda. I'm Navia. I'm Ashani. I'm Becca. I'm Molly. This is episode 43, One Does Not Simply Come Home. As always, there will be spoilers for the entire Tolkienverse ahead. With that said, let's get into it. Welcome back to One Does Not Simply. Uh, We are talking today about the scouring of the Shire, um, which is chapter eight, I think. Yes. I I don't know. How are we only 50% of the way through this book? Because it's over. But um, yeah. It's great that the last chapter (laughs) of the whole series is called chapter nine. It's like, no, I don't really think so. Um. All right, cool. So also, we are super excited today to have some guests on with us. We have Molly and Becca, who are here from the awesome podcast Pod and Prejudice, which you should definitely check out. Um, I have been (laughs) binging it lately. So (laughs) thanks for that. Uh, Super great content. Um, Yeah. And so yeah, uh, Molly, I guess I'll start with you. Um, Tell us a little bit about what your history with Tolkien and The Lord of the Rings is. Yeah, well, first, thanks so much for having us on. We're so excited to be here. Um, My history with Tolkien is it's interesting because this is the second Lord of the Rings podcast that we've been on. And I have this thing with Lord of the Rings where I have seen all the movies um, well, all the like the main movies, not the Hobbit movies. And I have during the pandemic, read the books for the first time, but I just have this inability for some reason to retain the plot, like the information that I receive in Lord of the Rings. <laughs> and this is the thing like with, with our podcast too, like I, spoilers just go in and out my head. I cannot remember what happens and things if I've like seen the movie before or whatever. So that's been convenient for that, but was less convenient when prepping for this. So I read the chapter twice and I also listened to um, podcast episodes covering it and covering the surrounding episodes or the surrounding chapters of Lord of the Rings just to like be sure I could at least somewhat remember what was going on at this point. (laughs) In fairness, I've read these books like 30 times at least at this point and still on this podcast I'm like, what? This happened when? (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad I'm not alone. Yeah. Becca, how about you? Um, I also read The Lord of the Rings for the first time during the pandemic. It was one of those things I'd wanted to do for years. And I was always like, I don't have the time. I don't have the time. And then, you know, we all locked down for a little while. And I was like, well, I will never read them if I do not read them right now. Um, And I finished them... I finished them uh, December 2021, and then on New Year's Eve, watched Fellowship of the Ring. It was great. Uh, I've never seen it before. (laughs) No, I'd never seen any of the movies. I'm I'm one of those book purists where I like wait until I've read the book to watch the movie. So I never watched the Lord of the Rings films, and I watched all of them January of uh, 2022, Uh, and that. I I have to say I loved both. Um, Specifically, I will say I loved all three movies and I really, really loved Return of the King as a book. And this was actually one of my favorite chapters in Return of the King. So I'm kind of excited to be back for it. Yeah. 
Um, I think you guys picked this chapter to talk about, right? Because um, it's it's a weird one. It's not in the movies, first of all. Um, so it just kind of, if you have seen the movies and you haven't read the books and you are listening to this podcast for reasons, um, <laughs> then, <laughs> then surprise, creep. this doesn't happen. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I'll give you a quick chapter summary of, of this so essentially where we are here is with the four hobbits coming back to the Shire. Um, they're immediately met at the gates of the Shire, which there weren't gates before. So this is already a surprise. Um, and they're met there basically with super unfriendly group of hobbits um, that are saying that there is a bunch of rules now and they're not allowed to let anybody in. All the inns are closed. They're not allowed to give them food. And the hobbits are baffled. Uh, where are all these rules coming from? Uh, and they quick, pretty quickly figure out that uh, Lotho Baggins is up at Bag End, uh, who, and he's kind of running the show. Um, but it seems like there's something a little bit more sinister going on as they start to uncover that, you know, things like there's the pipeweed has all gone missing. There's no more beer for some reason. Um, <laughs> and so finally they figure out that there's another person who's kind of in charge here um and eventually they uncover that it is surprise surprise saruman saruman is here in the shire i wonder why maybe it's because you let him go last time you encountered him uh and so he's basically taken over the shire he and wormtongue are running everything and they're you know doing their isengard thing where they ruin everything um, and so basically the hobbits decide that they're going to take the Shire back. Um, and so they round up a bunch of hobbits. They fight off all of the, uh, they're repeatedly referred to as ruffians in this chapter, but they're basically men, I think, that have come to the Shire and been generally up to no good. Um, and so they, they round them all up. They kill a bunch of them. They arrest the rest of them. And they finally uh, go confront Saruman, who it's transpired has already killed Lotho. Um, and they're, uh, Frodo is about to just let him go again, bafflingly. <laughs> and, uh, and eventually uh, Saruman is still dunking on Wormtongue, who decides that he's had enough and slits his throat. And then the Hobbit archers immediately kill him. So that... I've described what just happened in a much darker way than the chapter is written. Um, and so maybe that's a good starting point. Uh, how did you feel about the tone of this chapter? It is very different from everything we've read in Return of the King so far. Yeah, I want to make this question like even harder, actually, for our guests, just just to like torture <laughs> them, because uh, because y'all talk about, you know, like Jane Austen, right? And so like and I and I wonder because I've I've been reading um, this other book, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, that you guys might have read before, but it's got like a very whimsical tone. And Jane Austen, I feel like, is, has also this like sort of ironic and whimsical tone to it. And I was wondering if you guys picked up on any similarities between like Austen and Tolkien in this chapter, or like, if, yeah, did you guys did you guys think about that, or did you guys make that connection at any point? I tend to think of Austen and Tolkien as sort of polar opposite English writers in a lot of ways for a lot of reasons. One is that they have very different philosophies on the world and things they're trying to say in their writing. 
And I think this chapter in particular is very, very different personally than uh, most Jane Austen content. Because when you read mm. Jane Austen chapters, they're very brief. Uh, they're very uh, clean cut, uh, small portions of her story told with several biting remarks and given to you in a very uh, straightforward manner. That's ten- That tends to be how Jane Austen writes. Her subtext writing is um, usually done with a very light hand. Tolkien, not famous for his editing. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) That's such a kind way of putting it. (laughs) So he's very verbose, and this chapter is long. And it does have, for me, what I find interesting in the way he writes it is that he writes... The first half of Fellowship, or at least the first few hundred pages of Fellowship, you see he writes these um, long passages that are sort of sweet, gentle humor about the Shire. And then you go through the books and more and more they get darker in tone and they get more serious, the chapters. And this is interesting because you have this energy from Isengard brought in this darkness and the trauma that these hobbits have been through combined with sort of like an almost warped and hurt version of that lightness and that humor from the Shire we saw in the first few chapters. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. Like the um the the first the first part of Fellowship of the Ring, the first few chapters are so whimsical and they feel sort of like the Hobbit and parts of the Return of the King since they left Gondor have felt like that to me too but this felt like a different thing entirely like nothing that we've encountered in the book before like you're saying darker yeah I like the description of it as like a warped version of what we've seen before because this chapter is kind of funny actually like the way that it's written there is a lot of comedy in there even just the setup of these four hobbits like riding in in full armor and nobody knowing what to do with them i thought the moment that they were trying to arrest them was like genuinely hilarious (laughs) when they're like all right you can go but remember that i've arrested you uh which is yeah I i think there's a lot of things in here that are just genuinely really funny to read but then the undertone is so dark because these four hobbits have been through so much at this point and to come back home and have it be not the home that they remember is really sad right like it's very i there's something really satisfying about them coming back and thinking they are such hot shit like they're coming and they're like listen you're not arresting us we're gonna go where we want you let us into the let us into the shire this is literally our home what are you doing acting like this like being ridiculous i've known you since you were five like to all of these people that are but at the same time they are so tired like frodo is exhausted and when i was listening to the audiobook and when he says like don't be silly i'm gonna go where i please um the narrator was like don't be silly i'm gonna go where i please like it's not this big triumphant return that you kind of want it to be so it does have that juxtaposition there I also love it from the perspective that like we've spent the whole story traveling with these little hobbits who are the 
brave, plucky sidekicks almost to these men and these elves and even to Gimli the dwarf. And in the grand scheme of these battles, they're the little guys that are being watched out for and sort of overcoming obstacles and being underestimated. And they come back to the other hobbits and they're hot shit. Like Molly said, they're like the the guys in charge and everyone's so impressed with them. And suddenly they're the gallant knights like Aragorn. They're the Aragorn of the Shire. And on top of that, I think this starts to set up, this chapter more than anything starts to set up the separation between Frodo and the other three friends because they are coming back and they're like we're hot shit you don't tell us what to do we're strong we're gonna fight these guys we're gonna save our home and Frodo's like okay but we really can't fight any more war I cannot take any more war please yeah Mary and Pippin seem almost excited (laughs) to like be doing all of this they deserve it too like they deserve their moment in the sun first of all when they come in it says that two of them are uncommonly large and strong looking is that mary and pippin yes it's the ent wine so they drink ent wine with tree beard and it is canon in lord of the rings that ent wine makes hobbits swole Wait, it's not, oh, it's not it. wine it's it's water right isn't it like the ent- no it's like I mean, it's like the Ent juice, right? Like, yeah. whatever their, like, pre-workout <laughs> beverage is. It's kombucha. It's oh, my God. <laughs> it's whatever Treebeard is drinking before he has to, like, haul himself out of bed with whatever pulley system he has. Yeah. Correct. But I really, yeah, I mean, I feel like this chapter is very grounding in a way because this whole kind of journey back, right, it's like this the process of coming back to the Shire is they had all this celebration and then one by one people peel off from their party and then they come back and they're sitting there going, oh, like we don't fit here. We're not the same. But also that feeling of like the world you leave behind keeps going without you. And sometimes it keeps going in good ways. And in this case, like it clearly kept going down a much more negative path. But I really liked what you said, Becca, about that divergence between Frodo and the other hobbits. Because one of the things I really noticed in this chapter is, like, from the beginning, Frodo is like, well, we can't kill anybody. Like, let's not kill people. I want to do this without loss of life. He's very specific about that. And Merry and Pippin and Sam, Sam to a lesser extent, I think mostly just because he didn't want to tell Frodo no. But, like, Merry and Pippin are basically sitting there like... Buddy, I don't know that that's going to happen. And they're right. Like, it doesn't. And it's not that they don't give it a good effort, but people die. Like, they have to kill some of the ruffians, and hobbits also end up losing their lives in these battles. And it's that sense of, like, you know, I thought about the fact that Frodo is actually really removed from the fighting for most of the books. And Merry and Pippin are coming in with this very realistic sense of, like, in war— you don't always have the luxury of being like, well, we're not going to kill anybody. Yeah, you can absolutely see in this chapter the difference between the experiences that the hobbits actually had on their Mm -hmm. journeys. I mean, when it comes down to it, Frodo has never killed anyone. Like, yeah, Gollum fell into the (laughs) pit of Mount Doom, but that wasn't really his doing. And he hasn't... Sam has killed a bunch of orcs. We know that. Frodo hasn't... I don't think... Did he kill any? I don't think so. No, it's not, Frodo, yeah. Frodo has say, exacted, yeah. No, no, go, go for it, Becca. I was just going to say, I don't think Frodo killed anyone, but I think 
as to play like a slight devil's advocate to this, I think the other thing that separates their journeys is that Frodo has, of all of them, had to fight to keep his morals in the story. And I think that burden weighs on him very heavily. And the, my reading of it is you can read either like this really realistic way that Mary and Pippin see battle, especially after Mary uh, wrecks it during the final battle. <laughs> um, but I think there's also a way in which you could read it as Frodo having to be morally perfect through this whole story and almost failing at the very end and then taking seriously the idea that his soul could be corrupted in a way that others don't have to if that makes sense yeah Yeah. he's he's completely kind of lost his sense of self by the end right because he doesn't know which parts were the ring and which parts are him well it, it does it does sort of feel like he is um he's still playing sort of a longer game like uh, politically, ethically, than the others are, right? Everyone else is sort of like, we we need to save our home. And Frodo is like, maybe thinking on a slightly grander scale about the moral balance of the universe. Yeah, he's also really insistent that he wants to forgive people, which I think is, is something that Ishani, you had pointed out in your notes about the way that mercy shows up in these books. Um, he doesn't want to kill Saruman. He is very intent on just like leaving that be. And he also doesn't, before he realizes, before he knows that Lotho is dead, he really wants to go and like rescue him from whatever situation that he has ended up in or landed himself in. And I I, I wanted to spend a little bit of time talking about what you think Tolkien thinks about mercy because it's complicated, right? In some ways he deliberately shows you what happens when people are spared by showing you what happens with Gollum and showing you what happens with Saruman. But on the other hand, Frodo is his hero of this story and he consistently shows him forgiving people. Yeah, I mean, I think that 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 is that sort of where it comes down for me is that Frodo is the protagonist of the story and Frodo forgives and things tend to work out uh, when he forgives people and or forgives like, I mean, come on. Yes, he loses a finger, but Sauron (laughs) is destroyed. And I think that like the that's that is a that's a concept. I don't know. um, I I bring up like uh, my my Christian childhood way too often on this podcast, but it is something that I think it like comes up in the mysticality of, of Christian thought quite a lot that like the, like let go and let God, like, you know, you just got to do what God wants and God wants you to be merciful. And if you just do what, what God loves, like he'll take care of the rest for you. And even though Jesus and God are never mentioned in this series, like Tolkien sort of recreating that, um, the foundations of that belief system here in that, like, you know, uh, on the one hand, you know, Frodo's beliefs that they, you know, should not kill anybody doesn't really work out in this chapter, but like Saruman gets killed and Wormtongue gets killed and Lotho gets killed all without them having to lift a finger. And it appears that like the both Frodo is living inside this this sort of religion of mercy um, as the best revenge. And the book is making a comment that it's like tacitly endorsing that. Sorry, that was a lot of words. <laughs> It's interesting because, like, when I read this first, I was shocked when we got to this chapter and there was more 
stuff happening, right? Like, you think the story is over, you think that the evil has been defeated, but because Frodo let Saruman go, it is in the Shire, and it's affecting home, and it's like, nobody actually cares when this, like, figurehead is defeated, it's it's still trickled out there, and it's because he didn't kill him. And I think that um, w- while Frodo, I, like, I, th- I do think that Tolkien is saying that, like, Frodo has seen true darkness, and, like, he knows what goodness is because of that, and mercy, like, he's he's being merciful because he thinks that in the grand scheme of things, like, that is the best option, knowing what he knows and, like, seeing what he has seen and having borne the ring. Um, but at the same time, it's hard to say that that is the right choice because he wasn't able to defeat evil on a broader scale. Um, he was he was only thinking of like, I, yeah, I don't know. It, yeah, it's just it is complicated. Yeah, I think for me, the line I think about is from the earliest part of Fellowship where they're talking about uh, Bilbo and Gollum and about how Bilbo spares Gollum out of pity in, in that early chapter. And I think the implication is that because Bilbo spared Gollum's life, Bilbo was able to escape the damage that the ring can do to a person for the most mm. part. Mm-hmm. Resist it because he showed mercy. And I think... My take on what Tolkien's saying here is that it is a complicated question and that mercy begets sacrifice. It means you have to deal with really tough things. Like Wanda said, this is very Christian, even though I'm Jewish, but (laughs) I think the idea of forgiveness as an act of sacrifice and an act of, uh, as an act of goodness in itself, being for the greater good, but coming at expense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was just like, oh, yes, like, c- c- come turning Christian, are we? Uh- <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, yeah, don't tell my well, parents. See, <laughs> I have actually kind of an opposite. I'm, I'm not going to say that I think this is what Tolkien intended, because I don't think this is what Tolkien intended. But I also think that Tolkien maybe did something that he didn't intend, which is that there is a selfishness to Frodo's mercy. Yeah, mm-hmm. because Frodo is doing this for his own sense of like what makes me a good person and actually what that ends up doing right when they spare Saruman what Saruman says is you're wise and cruel and I think about the elves in that context right and the apathy and the non-involvement like the conscious non-involvement of the elves and then I sit there and I go like this is the Like, would you go back in time and kill a mass murderer if you knew that it would save, right? And then you have blood on your hands, but you're potentially saving a lot of lives. And I think about Frodo is so insistent on, like, people shouldn't die. But because he didn't stop Saruman or because nobody stopped Saruman a couple of chapters ago, the death toll is now in the at least tens, right? Like 19 hobbits die in that first clash. And I think there might be others who lose their lives at some other point in the chapter. And so there's that feeling of like, it was kind of a selfish choice, right? Like you were thinking about yourself and what you was, what was going to make you feel good. 
But I don't know that that actually helped the state of the world. And there's that piece of like, you are ultimately just prolonging everybody's misery because Gollum ends up dead in a horrible way. Saruman ends up dead in a horrible way. Wormtongue ends up dead in a horrible way. Like, none of these people actually turn their lives around. They no, that's just what make God everybody wants. else miserable for longer. Yeah, it's highly convenient in Tolkien's world that. Uh, all these baddies just happen to end up dead and the protagonist doesn't have to do it. I'm yeah. honestly, though, I'm not going to blame Frodo as much as I blame Gandalf for that, though. Oh, <laughs> I mean, no, fully Gandalf <laughs> is the fuck up here, but... I was just going to say, it's interesting. Um, I When I read it this last time, I was I had to, like, pause when they killed Wormtongue when the um, the hobbits, like, all of the hobbit arrows go into Wormtongue because I was like... Wormtongue just killed the big guy. Like, he killed the evil person. Like, wouldn't you be happy that he did that? And, like, wouldn't you wouldn't you then forgive him because he was being forced to do all this stuff? And I thought about it for a minute. And I listened to it again. And I was like, I guess the whole thing is they let Saruman go. And he continued to be evil. And Wormtongue, like, he has only knows what he's learned at this point and like isn't gonna go turn his life around like they figure that and so he had to die also and I think it's interesting that while one it wasn't Frodo who killed him it was the mob like it wasn't a specific hobbit and it kind of goes to show that like one person can't be looking out for the greater good it has to be a community effort yeah i think also there's part of it that's like the knee-jerk reaction to like frodo our leader said not to do this and this guy just did it so we gotta kill him now mm, true um I, at least that's that's kind of how i read it although i also had like some of the questions that you had about you know it this chapter <laughs> is like in some ways very organized in the ways that they like rally the hobbits and you know P- Pippin goes to get the Tooks to come over and all like there's some organization happening and then in another way it's like totally chaotic <laughs> like nobody is talking to each other nobody is coordinating anything and so by the time this happens I feel like it's just so much chaos where nobody actually knows who's giving orders or like what to do um, and that's kind of what leads to to this situation. Um, I did. I did want to go back to the Gandalf thing for a second <laughs> because, uh, okay. So Saruman is obviously an asshole, but he's kind of spitting facts at the end here, <laughs> where where he straight up calls out Gandalf and he says, uh, "I have the quote here." This is where um, it's like he put down his tools after he's done with them. Yeah, he says Gandalf drops his tools when they've done their task. Um, it makes it sound like really badass, actually. <laughs> he's kind of right, though. I mean, Gandalf fully knew what was going on in the Shire, and he just, like, ditches them and is like, I'm gonna go hang out with Tom Bombadil. You guys take care of this, even though you've already <laughs> done so much. Um, and I, like, I just wanted to talk about... <laughs> Is Gandalf supposed to be good in this story? <laughs> like, he doesn't really come off as very likable. The whole 
part where he's like, oh, you guys have something waiting for you, but don't worry. I'm so proud of you. You got this. I was like, no, they don't. <laughs> this is awful. They've just fought a war. It's enough. Right. But I, I think maybe Tolkien thinks he's giving them the chance to lead their people as men. But as a reader of the story in 2022, I'm kind of like... Gandalf could have fixed this with a snap of his fingers. That yeah. <laughs> this was a lot of trauma and pain for the hobbits to fix. Right, and given them any guidance at all. And like throughout the whole thing, I mean, again, I don't remember everything that happened in the Lord of the Rings series, but Gandalf came in, scooped them up, was like, We're going to I'll on meet this you adventure. at this bar. Or, <laughs> right. I mean, and I guess in the Hobbit too, like My experience with The Hobbit is solely uh, The Russian Hobbit, which is somewhere in the the depths of YouTube. But uh, from that, what I remember is that he comes in, he's like, Bilbo, we're going on an adventure. And Bilbo's like, "Uh, okay. So that like he just does this and doesn't help really. And he reminds me of Dumbledore, not just because they look the same, but because... I'm glad you brought it up, because I was going to bring it up. Yeah, like, he he has his little prodigy, and he's like, you got this. You're going to do this. Uh, I'm not really going to tell you how. I'm going to let you be on your own, suffer a lot for a young person, um, because the hobbits are young-ish like they're they are young for hobbits and just like like for what for why i think what's implied um and this is like really this is like kind of a rough thought so you guys should uh tell me how to make it better (laughs) uh but i think what's implied is that gandalf has a job to do in middle earth and he is conscious enough of his role and his purpose that he is really, he's like kind of erring on the side of caution when it comes to stopping when his purpose, when his job is finished. Like to take it back to the Fellowship of the Ring, when Frodo says, Gandalf, why can't you take the ring to Mordor? Like, why can't you do this? And he says, no, 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 no. Like I, I have the very, very best intentions. Um, and yet I know that if I were to take the ring to Mordor, I would become corrupted out of my own desire to do good. So he seems like he's uh, someone who's really cognizant of the risks of taking his own uh, power, even the power to do good, too far simply by taking on agency. And, uh, and so, and it's very sad because he has to leave the hobbits precisely at the moment when maybe he could be of the most direct help to them. But I think it is supposed to be for the best. Yeah. Well, and, you know, something interesting is that we all kind of developed these ideas about, like, Tolkien's broad themes, whether that's environmentalism or, like, his feelings on industrialization. But there is something here, too, potentially about, like, what Tolkien's understanding of education was, right? Because I'm like, this is bad scaffolding. Um, Gandalf's idea of scaffolding is to push somebody off of a skyscraper and go, good luck. But that's also something where I'm like, maybe that's just Tolkien's conception of like how people develop skill is you put them in a circumstance and you see if it makes them or it breaks them. I mean, that that is 
consistent with like probably his experience of war, right? Of just yeah, like, I was gonna say the same yeah. thing. Yeah, and even potentially his experience of education, right? Like educational psychology as a field, or like educational, like you know, getting your degree in the field of education is just a relatively new concept. So I don't know how much that would have been around when Tolkien was himself like a student and then a teacher. I mean, and by all accounts, he was a shitty teacher. Right. There's that story of like Diana Wynne-Jones like showing up to all of his classes and he was never there or something like that. Oh, that's great. She, she's also one of my favorite childhood, like, writers, so. Yes, yeah. she's a delight, right? But she was like, oh, no, he intentionally would, like, just mutter into a blackboard because he was trying to get people to drop his class so that he could go back to writing Lord of the Rings. My God. But at the same time, like, he, this is, to go back to it being his experience of war, like, to learn how to get through something traumatic there is no way to learn that without going through it and I think that like in terms of the journey the hobbits have been on like there was nothing that could actually be done to prepare them for it so I guess I'm kind of going against what I said before but like he had to just drop them in because what could he have done to prepare them for what they went through yeah yeah I think like I agree with everything that you guys are saying about, you know, the the intent that Gandalf had in doing this. I just think the way he did it comes off as very cruel. <laughs> it's very much like, oh, go deal with your little hobbit problems. <laughs> like, <laughs> And it is true that it's like, yeah, okay, there's probably nothing he could have done to make the actual quest of the ring easier. Right. Like there's there was a limited amount. I mean, he could have potentially been more transparent or more more forthcoming with like Theoden and Aragorn. That would have been great. But like with the Hobbits, you're right. Like, I don't know that there's anything he could have done to really soften the the impending trauma. Having said that, they've all already been through some (laughs) traumatic shit. And I'm like, this one did not need to happen. Like you could have gone in there and probably solved this problem without any loss of life the way Frodo wanted. Now that I'm saying that, I'm like, shit, was Gandalf's lesson that when you're actually in charge, like there might not be a way to have everything you want. Um, But I refuse to be talked around. Fuck Gandalf. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I also think like, Part of, you know, the thing that we wonder is like, okay, he could have just not let Saruman go that second time or the first time or any of the times. Um, But when when you read this chapter, one of the things that's really interesting um, is that it's very obvious that the Shire was kind of on this path before Saruman showed up and he just kind of capitalized on the situation that was already in place with Lotho and his ruffians. yeah, I was just going to say, yeah, yeah, that that perked my ears because I think one of the things in the book is like through the entire series, you have these hobbits talking about how dark and scary everything is around them and they have the Shire in their hearts. The Shire's home, the Shire can be home for them. And when they come back, the Shire's gone as they know it. And it feels almost inevitable that this massive war that took over this this realm basically wrecked their homeland too. It's not immune from that. It's not protected. It's not safe. And 
for me, the saddest line possibly of the whole series is when they walk into Bag End and Sam says, this is worse than Mordor. Mordor, this is home. It was, it's devastating that it feels to them like the little kernel of hope they had that one piece of their lives would be normal again. It's just impossible because there is no coming home to a non-war-torn place. There's no haven from war. Yeah, I said at the beginning when we were talking about what we were going to talk about that I was probably going to bring up Chekhov, and and here I go. In (laughs) The Three Sisters, the whole time the sisters are saying, or the youngest sister is saying, I want to go home to Moscow, I want to go home to Moscow, to Moscow, to Moscow, to Moscow. And they never go to Moscow, and in every class that you take on Chekhov in college, they're like, why don't they go home? Like, Moscow is there. They have trains, like, they should just get on the train and go to Moscow. And the thing is that Moscow of their childhood doesn't exist and will never exist again, whether or not there was a war going on, which there is. Um, oh, and they it, kind of know that. They they don't say it out loud, but the older sisters have more experience, like, and uh, more knowledge of the world than the youngest sister, and they just... They need to keep that kernel of hope alive, I think, for their family and for for themselves. So they will never go to Moscow because it always has to stay this perfect little Moscow of their childhood in their memories. And the hobbits, similarly, like, I wish they could have kept it alive, but then where would they go? Yeah, yeah, it's, it, it is funny. Like, I, I thought it was... Uh, I actually did not love the way that the first part of this chapter was written as they come into the Shire, because it's like all written as though it's like, oh, some strange men that look suspiciously like men from Isengard. And it's like, yes, because they are like, and it was, to, I, I, Navya and Ashani, I think you guys had sort of the opposite reaction to me. I think you were like, wait, how did they guess that it was Saruman? But I was kind of like, you guys, like Sam saw this in the mirror of Galadriel, like Saruman dropped a big fat hint when you ran into him on the road that he was about to wreck the Shire. Like, and then like all of these clues come up that these are like people from Isengard and it's like, okay of course right <laughs> this is, it's it's one of those things that it's like that like how you were saying molly where you kind of forget details where i remembered reading this as you know a kid and this being like a holy shit moment of like saruman is here and so when i was reading it this time i was like wait they kind of know the whole time that this is probably saruman and then it almost feels weird when frodo has the like oh you're a sharky realization because it's like yeah you you just said that Saruman is probably here. <laughs> like he's here also, now. Do we have a theory as to why people call him Sharky? Sharky yes, is the dumbest name. No, it is. It is actually in the notes. Yeah, there's Navi. a footnote about it. Um, apparently in orc in the orc tongue, uh, Sharku is old man. So that they think that that's the origin. They think that's so funny. like he didn't do. This. <laughs> I don't know why I just said they think as if this was a real historian. <laughs> Historians speculate. J.R.L. channel, like own mind speculates that I guess yeah. this is where this nickname comes from. It's written in the footnote that way, though, where it's like, it, it, it's possible that this comes from. <laughs> That's so This is funny. why he was a bad teacher. He didn't have time to teach when he was thinking about where Sharky came from. Yeah. That's right. It does feel a little bit, though, like that moment where one of the orcs goes, Ola! And you're like, please, 
please somebody <laughs> tell this man tell this yeah. linguistics professor <laughs> right yeah please rein it in yeah um I, that's like okay i'm exploiting this moment to make a hard turn into i i want i wanted to bring something up um and i'm afraid i'm not going to get a chance to bring it up any other time on this recording and it is yeah, yeah, sorry. Um, it's when they are <laughs> uh, at the, um, what is it called? The guardhouse, right when they get across the Brandywine River. And the various uh, kind of hobbits that are in the employ of Lotho are, who are stationed there, one of them is like a little bit more friendly than the others, and he's kind of divulging what's been going down. And then the others go, we're going to report you if you keep talking like that. And then he says, well, you're all sneaks. And then Sam says, I'm going to have, I haven't like had enough of this orc talk. And I thought that was really interesting uh, because what, like, what does he mean by that? They're not talking about orcs. I feel like what he means is they're, you're, they're talking like orcs. They're, they're talking about Lotho and they're talking about Sharky like the orcs would talk about the Dark Lord. And so and it's like Sam is coming back from the war with these perceptions that are of, you know, attitudes towards authority that are uh, sort of no longer acceptable to him. And I wanted to get your guys' thoughts on that. It's interesting because when I read that in your notes, I thought you meant that, like, we talked a lot about how the orcs feel like they're involved in a lot of office politics. And I I thought what you were getting at was that, like, this kind of conversation is similar to that, where it's like people are gossiping and generally, like, you know, involved in a little bit of like backstabbing of like someone in the office is trying to snitch on someone else to the boss to get him in trouble. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, I, I think. I think I thought of it differently this time when I read it, like almost as if what he, what Sam doesn't like about this is not just the, not just the politics, but also something having to do like with the authority, like a particular kind of politics that only comes when you have a kind of sort of cowardly deference to authority. Yeah. Also, well, I think what comes to mind when I hear your question is that Sam thinks the authority has been struck down and he is expecting I think the expectation there is that everyone can live peacefully and equally and it you know it's like communism where in theory great idea in practice there will never be everyone can live peacefully and equally without someone in charge being a a dictator and so he's coming back thinking like we've gotten rid of that evil power why are we all still like looking up to some someone like why are we all still underneath someone like when we could all be just living happily and equally right which is particularly interesting for sam to think as somebody who has never been equal, right? Who has always, since the moment we've met him, literally been a subordinate to another character. I, uh, my take on the orc talk was closer to the politics of it, but I thought it was um, also about sort of the behavior, the suspicion 
the uh, turning on each other. Hobbits live a very cohesive, camaraderie-based lifestyle. They're very collaborative. They're very friendly. And I think the orc talk comment was about the ways in which orcs turn on each other a little as well and how they they develop infighting behaviors and start uh, backstabbing each other, which is very common in the the orc world as well. And Sam witnessed it firsthand. So that was that's another element to this as well, I think. Um, the idea of orc behavior being something that hobbits don't engage in because it's not in their nature. I, I think also it like goes back to the remember the prologue of, of this book <laughs> uh, where we got into like basically how the Shire functions and like it's it's political system and who's in charge and all that stuff and I think you the it's almost like reading this now I feel like that's why the prologue was there is so that we can understand exactly how it fell apart um because you had these the, the sheriffs and the mayor and all of those those political systems were already in place, right? That was described in the prologue. And then basically that system was exploited in order to create this warped uh, version of it that has, you know, the shadowy figure behind the scenes who's kind of using the same systems that were already in place in order to manipulate things to be his way. Even Lotho Baggins, right? Like this idea of the wealthy and well-known families hold a disproportionate amount of power without holding any kind of official office. Because at least the Tooks, it's like, well, that's kind of like it feels like at that point it is sort of its own office to be in charge of that whole family. But like the Bagginses don't hold any office in the Shire. They just have always had power because they've been a wealthy and well-respected family. And then Bilbo and Frodo go away, and the person who comes into that power is not as good of a person, but still has all those resources and still has all that sway. And so, like, even that system already kind of existed. It's just that then what happens when the person who gets put into it uh, is a weasel. Yeah. Also, total side note that I that is for some reason reminded me. You just reminded me of Ishani. I found out today. Uh, sorry to talk about football, but I found out today that there oh, <laughs> hard pivot. There, I, I'm so curious where this is going. There's these two. <laughs> there's these two players in the league um, who are cousins, and they're Bradley Chubb and Nick Chubb. And I found out today that their family basically like has this town that they created in Georgia called Chubb Town and <laughs> they basically oh, like no. well it, it's actually a really cool story because like they at the height of Jim Crow laws they basically like set up their own little space in Georgia and they were like this is ours you can't come here and everyone just kind of respected that and left them alone for generations and this place still exists it's still there it's called Chubb Town <laughs> you can look it up wow wow that's amazing yeah. that's wild yeah so, uh, yeah, <laughs> I don't know where you thought I was going to go with that, but it was relevant. 
I mean, I do think taking it really uh, uh, in a hostile fashion back to our other topic, um, uh, Sam, like you're saying, Ashani, doesn't really, he's he's an odd person to be making this statement, but I think it is, it's interesting that he's coming in with this um, take on the Hobbit's behavior that is imported from a completely different setting, as if the Hobbits are going to understand what he means by orc talk, right? And it's almost like a it's a belief that Sam has or kind of a value system that he's bringing back with him that almost, it's like a bad fit perhaps for the, um, for the, the setting, but it's like, that's just what, like, it's what's happening, right? Um, the hobbits are all kind of bringing back their viewpoints that they have, uh, developed during the war and imposing them on the Shire, which is their home. And once they kick out Saruman, uh, they're in charge, Right. So like the Shire is going to go through a major overhaul um, no matter what happens, because it's now it's now taking on more like kind of societies of men type characteristics and belief systems. Right. Like Sauron is now like a hypothetical um, plays a role in like their politics or ethics. I want to I want to use that opportunity to ask kind of. I think what will probably be the the main question of this episode. This this chapter is a gold mine of discussion topics, but uh, w- what is the point of this chapter? What is Tolkien trying to say with this chapter being here? I think there's probably more than one point, but I, I want your takes on what you think the main message is that he's trying to deliver with this. To me, I think that the the biggest thing is that war affects everyone and everywhere. Um, There isn't any place that is going to be safe from it. And then at the same time, like it affects everywhere differently. So even if you knock out the main problem or even if the war ends, it isn't going to just turn everything back to normal. Like things are going on other places that not everyone is aware of. Information has to travel. Like things aren't going to go back to normal. Yeah, it's uh, it, sorry. <laughs> I was just going to say the the point you just said about like information having to travel. I think the Shire deliberately cuts itself off from information, which was totally exploited in this sense. Absolutely. I think the ending of Return of the King, which you guys I'm sure will tackle next episode. <laughs> which ending? Is... <laughs> <laughs> Uh, the the book ending, there's at least seven <laughs> somehow in this series. But I think the the way in which Frodo's story ends is one of the saddest in fantasy. And this piece is cut out of the movie, but I think it's a crucial piece of why Frodo needs to leave the Shire in the end. And it is that sense that that life that he sacrificed everything for for everyone is gone that idea that they spent all this time fighting for the good and the good exists in the shire there was no protecting the shire and there's no returning to before there's only moving forward and i think that that's part of frodo's journey here is this understanding that he will never get to experience again the life that he sacrificed for 
the good of Middle-earth to take the ring to Mordor. And so for me, it really like closes the loop on the fact that this story is not a happy one. This is not one where they are victorious in the end. This is them coming home from war, never to return to what really home is. And I mean, Sam gets to live that out a little bit and you kind of get the sense that he gets to live the life that Frodo sacrificed for. Uh, But I think... Let's see if I can articulate this last little piece of what I'm saying. Oh, yeah, it it all ties back to Tolkien's experience, I'm sure, fighting in a war and coming home and feeling like his countryside England was cut down into something different and was changed by this war. And therefore, he he never got to actually return to his the England of his childhood, the England that was his first home. So that's what I think he's getting getting at in the chapter. I th- I I read that I, I read that as very profoundly um, melancholy in a spiritual way, and yet I also recognize that there are some people who read it in a very literal way, um, in the sense of you know you come home after in Tolkien's case, a world war and everything is different. Like for Indian, for, for instance, India is no longer a British colony. And you like in, in the way that the chapter is written, I picked up on some critiques of greed and people exploiting war to amass personal wealth, which is something that changes when wars happen. Lotho does it in the Shire. And I also picked up on some indicators that like, or, some signs of pastoralism, like Tolkien just loves it when there is no pollution ever and no garbage and nothing changes and nothing is different. And there are never two houses that look alike. And it's like, I'm sorry, single tier. Like that's sort of just like, that's just how it is. And I can, uh, I can see somebody, like, I, I guess, I guess I simultaneously am so moved by this chapter. And also I'm like, people better not read this in like a, you know, build the wall kind of way, because that is a misreading. Yeah. Tolkien definitely like thinks that cutting down a tree is worse than murder. Like he spends more time talking about the trees that were cut down in the Shire than any of the hobbits who died. Totally. Although to be fair, we know how Tolkien feels about writing action and battle sequences and how he feels by contrast about loving descriptions of nature. And so that is also just, I think, very in keeping with his style. But no, I totally I'm I am on the same page with everybody about where that kind of central message is. But I think the thing to me, if I can take it bigger for a moment, is that what makes this series so impactful is this idea of it's not just about war, right? Or it's not specific to war. This notion that you are changed by your experiences and you cannot go backwards, right? And that is something that I think is true of everybody, right? We don't stay static and the world around us doesn't stay static. And there are good things that come from that, right? Like even in this chapter, we see, for instance, 
Mary step into this leadership role in a really competent and lovely way where we're like, I know, right? All of us making faces because Mary is a delight. Um, <laughs> Underrated. Done, yeah, done dirty by the movies, but like such a delight in the book. And so there are these pieces of like, that can be really good growth individually, right? You can come back and say like, I am different and I'm different in these ways that give me strength or give me competency. And on the flip side, there are ways in which that is a loss, right? Even the bad parts about the the things that used to be are a loss. And so, you know, Navi, you mentioned the trees, right? But I think sometimes that's where we feel that loss most acutely is it's not the big sweeping changes. It's the things that we took for granted as just being like, yeah, of course that tree's always going to be there. Why would that tree not be there, Right. The party and then tree. the tree is gone. Yeah. Yeah, we used it for parties. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it was also full of wood inside and made it great for industry. Yeah. Yeah. I, I definitely agree with, with all of you. I think they're, these are all definitely um, major components of this. I, I read this chapter as being about the fragility and precarious nature of anything that you love where it's you have the <laughs> sorry uh i you have this situation that i i think is very resonates very probably very clearly with people who have had any experience in in wartime where or or any experience doing something really difficult or challenging where you hold something in your heart that keeps you going. And for a lot of people, that's the thought of home, like going home or returning to your loved ones or whatever that is. And that's such a fragile thing to hold because you don't know that it's gonna be there in the way that you thought. Um, And so I think that's how I read this, which is kind of like related to everything that all of you were saying, where you you have Frodo and Sam basically through sheer force of how much they love the Shire and want to go back there, actually make it back. And it's it's gone. And it's not there in the way that they needed it to be. And I think that it's like, I am, I, I always, when I, whenever I read this chapter, I get very frustrated that it was left out of the movies because to me, like, this is the point. This is the point of the whole story is that there is no, like, perfect scenario that you you get this happy ending in where you get to go and return to all your friends and yeah spoiler alert they're gonna rebuild the shire in the next chapter but like it the fact that they have to do that and the fact that the journey didn't end when the ring was destroyed it frustrates me that that's not in the movies i i love the movies but this is like this is a miss to me to not have this in there I agree with that entirely. I watched the movies for the first time, like I said, like a year ago, and I read this chapter and I was like, shit, this is the whole story. I don't know if I can swear on your podcast. I'm so sorry. Nope, you're good. Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> um, and like I went online and I looked it up and everyone was like, thank God this was cut. There were already like six endings to this movie. And I was like, that's true, but <laughs> this was important. <laughs> I didn't really need like four minutes of Gandalf laughing in increasingly creepy ways. I could have had this <laughs> instead. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. And it's it, it sort of reads as though Tolkien has been 
uh, keeping track mentally of what's been going on in the Shire the entire time, because even though it is just a chapter, and it, it sort of reads like something that Tolkien wishes were longer, like there is so much in there, and, you know, it could probably, it's an especially long chapter, but it, it's, it's got a lot of content. I'll probably reread it a couple of times, because there is just so much there. I have one more point just on all the lovely things people have been saying about the the way that this story came together and how home wasn't there when they got back. The other thing that I think is the flip side and maybe even the hopeful side of that is that they're not the same when they come back. They come back ready to fight for home in a way they could not have before their journey. And that empowerment and that ability to protect what is theirs is something they gained on their journey. And that's like the the light, light kernel of hope we have. Sam ready to rebuild and Merry and Pippin leading an army and Frodo ready to lead his people through like mercy. And I think you see their capacity to fight for their home as part of the fact that their home is gone. That's also... To mention Chekhov one more time, kind of the same, like in The Three Sisters, they are also not the same. And that's part of why you can never go back to a place that like you are not the same person that you were when you were there. And if the Shire had been exactly the same, I think it's possible that Frodo still would have left in the end because he had been too changed and he couldn't go back to the life that he had lived before. Um, maybe the other hobbits could, but I don't know. Uh but that's just another point. But I think that's very beautifully said, Becca. Thank you so much, Molly and Becca, for joining us. Is there anything you'd like to uh, plug or have let, let our listeners know about? Yeah, well, we, as we said, we host a podcast called Pod and Prejudice that uh, goes over Jane Austen work. Molly's never read the Jane Austen books before the podcast. I read them growing up. And we cover them together. We're halfway through Emma right now. So if you want to join us on that journey, you can. You can go back to our former seasons, which are other books. Um, you can find us on any podcatcher. Or uh, you can find us on Instagram at Pod and Prejudice, Twitter at Pod and Prejudice. You can email at us at podandprejudice at gmail.com. Molly, am I missing anything? I think that's all of them. Uh, we're on Facebook, but... <laughs> you know <laughs> we're bad at checking the facebook yeah right we're on twitter for now um but yeah that's that's where we are and uh it's fun and thank you so much for having us on this show we love to talk about other books that aren't jane austen every once in a while so this is really fun thanks for listening to one does not simply this episode was edited by Navia. You can find us on Twitter at ODNSPod and Tumblr at One Does Not Simply Pod. You can also find Pod and Prejudice anywhere you get your podcasts. Special thanks to Becca, Molly, and Andrew, Sneha, and all our listeners for joining us on this journey. If you like what you hear, give us a rating or a review on whatever platform you listen to. Thank you so much for coming. Also, this is not the end of the podcast. This is the end of the episode. Navia, you said close out the podcast. I'm like, no, don't stop listening. <laughs>